my family's been through a lot and you know we we are the american dream in a lot of ways but it wasn't easy and i and i didn't grow up privileged by any means uh, but i am very aware of the privileges that i have had and i have no problem you know being very clear about that and and knowing that i have more than many others she is the co-author of the juhu beach club cookbook based on her restaurant juhu beach club in oakland california the restaurant is no more it's closed we will talk to her about that her cooking was featured on cnn's parts unknown with anthony bourdain and she was a contestant on top chef season 6 preeti mistri is outspoken she's bold and she proudly accepts all the different layers of her identity She is a brown queer immigrant woman chef who challenges the historically male white dominance of the culinary industry. Welcome to Immigrantly. I'm your host Sadia Khan. Welcome to the show Preeti. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your identity. As I mentioned in my intro, you're very open and vocal about how different layers of your identity inform your cooking and outlook on life basically. Yeah. Why do you think it's essential to own one's self entirely and is there a specific part of your personality that is more dominant? I no, I mean I first I'll answer your last question first. I I can't imagine that any particular part is more dominant than any other. If it is, it's not apparent to me. Um <laughs> it's all in me. but you know i mean i feel like for me i've never i know that not, i'm not going to succeed by trying to hide part of who i am i don't think that 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 really helps i think like being true to yourself no matter what that is is really i i've always felt that that was the most important thing i think that we live in a society that wants everyone to sort of conform to a certain way of being and some for some people that's a lot easier than others just because of the nature of their identity that's just more the majority but for myself being queer being brown being an immigrant being a woman i don't really have that choice hmm. and i'm not going to like live my life somehow trying to make other people comfortable i don't feel like that i i don't think i would have been as successful as i've been in my life if i had chosen that path to try to hide or focus on making other people feel more comfortable instead of being my full self. I think we're all the most successful no matter what we're doing whether it's, you know, solving a math problem or writing a novel when we're like truly our full selves. And Preeti, how has that informed your cooking in terms of what you create? Oh, I think it's tremendous. I mean, you know, my story is a lot different than a lot of other sort of women women of color chefs and oftentimes there's this sort of stereotypical trope not that there's anything wrong with it that's it's many people's stories and it's wonderful but you know i get asked this question which i'm sure not a lot of white guys get asked a lot which is like <laughs> oh did you did you grow up cooking with your mother and grandmother and the answer is no <laughs> not at all i'm the youngest of three girls and i've always been masculine of center so i didn't really identify with the work that my mother was doing as something that i saw for myself and and so i really just saw cooking as like another chore mm-hmm. um i was very curious about food and eating and and so i i came to cooking because i grew up and decided that's what i wanted to do as a career professionally So like just right there I feel like you know my cooking and my Indian 
cooking is different because I didn't learn like, this is the way that you have to do things. This is the way you're supposed to do things from an early age. I just ate, you know, Darabat Rutli Shak, Gujarati food every night. And Mm. then I also ate pizza and hamburgers growing up in Ohio. (laughs) And I was influenced by all of it. And, you know, going to like Edison, New Jersey or India and eating Pani Puri and dosa and all this stuff. And like, I was just influenced by all of it. And so none of it was necessarily somehow more paramount than the other because I wasn't cooking any of it. I was really just like tasting and appreciating the different things that I liked. And it wasn't necessarily, I mean, my parents sort of weighted Indian cuisine differently than other foods, but you know, we, there was nothing wrong with us eating. I mean, even my parents are both, my mom's vegetarian, but they always allowed us to eat whatever to make our own decisions about whether we wanted to eat meat or not. And so for me, I feel like all of that, and then also I feel like being queer and just sort of a lot of rules that I feel like I've broken throughout the years, I don't feel beholden to any particular tradition or legacy. And what I mean by that is not just being Indian, but also like I didn't necessarily come up in a traditional way in the industry, like working for some, you know, famous chef and, you know, learn their way. And, Mm. you know, I worked for a number of chefs, um, but none that really sort of took me under their wing as a mentor for any like long period of time. Um, So I I feel like I really carved my own path. And so because of that, for me, I just feel like there's there's always been like literally no rules. And how was the experience at culinary school? Because I know you went to one and I was listening to one of your interviews where you talked about how initially when you were at culinary school, you felt like other students had this like cultural capital in terms of their experience with fine dining and Western cuisine. And mm-hmm. you thought you had to somehow rely on them, but then you overcame that fear. Um, what was that journey like? It was really just like a lot of situations where a young person goes off to school thinking that they're like really great at something and then they get there and they're like, oh, wow, actually a lot of people are really great at this. Um, (laughs) You know, I think we all experience that um, when we go off to college or graduate school or what have you. And, you know, you sort of realize that you have a larger learning curve than you thought you did. Um, and, and maybe within your own community of friends and family, it seemed like everyone was like, wow, you're so great at this. And then you get there and you're like, wow, a lot of people are great at it. In fact, some of them have a lot more experience and knowledge. And and a lot of that was exactly what you're saying, the cultural capital of just being, you know, I mean, I think about my uh, nieces and nephews now and their experience of the U.S. and the world. And we lived a very sheltered life. I mean, my parents didn't mm-hmm. have a lot of money. If we went out to dinner and it was a splurge, it was like Olive Garden. So, you know, being open to like fine dining and, you know, and then there's the people who I'm in school with that are like, you know, grew up in Europe and come from a wealthy family and have been like eating in fancy restaurants since the time they were like five years old. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, I learned to like properly eat with a fork and a knife from my girlfriend, who is now my wife. <laughs> like, and, and it's just that's not we didn't know. You know what I mean? Like, you you know, you I grew up eating with my hands at home. You're supposed to eat rice with your hands. That This is what right. is taught to us. Like many people in my family do that. And sometimes when I use fork and even spoon, they are surprised as to why I am doing that. Because the fun of eating with hands, especially rice, is like mm-hmm. beyond what you would ever experience. I think everybody should try it once at least. 
Exactly. Exactly. And and it's all a skill, right? You know, I mean, yeah. like learning to use a fork and a knife and eat like cut a piece of chicken and eat it just the same way it is to learn to eat rice with your hands or with chopsticks. You know, all of these things. Are, if, if we lived in a world, I, I mean, I'd love an ideal world where all of those things were equally valued and that, you know, we, we would see that every single one of them is a skill of a different sort. And, 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 you know, ideally we live in a world where all three are valued uh, equally, but, you know, in this particular, you know, I was in a European school, I was in Le Cordon Bleu, it's French classic cuisine, you know, these sort of throw all that out the window. There were classic dishes that people knew about. There were things that people knew, you know, I never really, I think I'd maybe had steak once in my life. And at that point I was vegetarian and here I am like making this perfect, like, you know, green peppercorn sauce and steak and I remember the chef like tasting mine and saying that it was perfect. And I was like, really? And so like, I mean, I was vegetarian, but I would still taste everything just because I'm, you know, I'm there to learn. Yeah. And so I immediately like started cutting it and tasting it and being like, okay, he said this is perfect. Like I need to remember this and understand it. But you know, a lot of people, they didn't necessarily need that because they grew up eating those things. And so they were just very, you know, or just certain European vegetables that they were more familiar with or um, what have you. So, you know, I mean, and then pastry was just always like, I've never, it's never been my forte. So I was just had quite a learning curve there, but I, I did catch up by, by the end. So Preeti, talking about curriculum, my understanding of this is, that what what's taught at culinary schools is very focused on Western cuisine, right? It's very yes. Western centric, and to me, it seems like this this whole notion of Western cuisine is somehow revered. Do you think it has anything to do with like this this colonial mindset where we have hierarchical discrepancies? Because to me, Pakistani or Indian or Mexican cuisine is better in many ways. But I think culinary schools haven't caught up with that or have they? I am not sure how things have evolved. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear a little bit of a laugh in your voice at the beginning there around the colonialism. <laughs> and because, it, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious that that is like the state of our world and, and, and it greatly impacts what we value and what we don't. I, you know, I, I would never say that any particular cuisine is better than any others, but I do think that recognizing the complexity of certain cuisines, whether that be Indian, Pakistani, Mexican, Chinese, et cetera, they are cuisines that have just been denigrated in a way and sort of seen as and devalued where, you know, you see certain cuisines, definitely all of Europe, um, Japanese cuisine sort of elevated in terms of how it is seen and experienced. I remember when I first opened Juhu and people were complaining because Mm -hmm. we had a chicken curry on the menu and it was, I think it was like $22. And it was a a whole leg on the bone with all these vegetables and with rice, with a little side of raita and pickles. And that was $22. And people were really angry and complaining that that was somehow too expensive. And, and, you know, on my day off, I went out to dinner with my wife and we went to a friend's Italian restaurant and I ordered this like tortellini. And it was like literally like eight pieces of pasta with like a tiny bit of game hen mousse inside each one in a broth, not even like a sauce with any other vegetables, just a broth. And it was $28. Wow. (laughs) And, and, And I was like, here's the deal. Like, I'm not mad. 
Yeah. I understand the skill and labor that goes into this. The problem I have is that why is it that people are so mad about what I'm doing and not recognizing the skill and labor that goes into that? Like, I'm not trying to say they shouldn't charge that much. I charge as much as you think you need to charge. And and I'm happy to pay it and respect, you know, your, you know, talent and, and your restaurant. But where is that same respect for Indian cuisine or Chinese cuisine or Mexican cuisine to recognize the amount of labor and just skill that goes into making it? Talking about fine dining, do you know of any fine dining DC Indian or in mm-hmm. New York or, or even on the West Coast where you are, where you could like, which you can name? And- um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of Mexican places in terms of Indian, you know, it's, I haven't visited that many in terms of the higher end restaurants. I think one of the things that we suffer from right now in the Indian sort of restaurant community is sort of artifice for artifice. And, you know, I'm probably Mm -hmm. the wrong person to ask as well, because I also like, uh, as much as I do go to fine dining restaurants from time to time, I kind of feel like they're total bullshit. I was going to ask you that because I, I was stalking you before this interview. So I was listening to a lot of interviews that you did. And I know that you mentioned somewhere that you just view fine dining as disingenuous, especially when it comes to um, women and other minorities, um, whether it's customers or cooks, like both are mistreated. I wanted to ask you about that. So maybe we can just talk about that too. Yeah, I mean, I I just think that like the system is broken. So there's a couple pieces to it. Like I I see that like there's there's the food itself, there's the 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 creation. Um and then there's the system. So to speak to the the second part again that you're saying about the disingenuousness and and how women and people of color are treated. The system was built on the oppression of women and people of color. Mm. That is just like the history of dining and especially high-end fine dining, if not also just your basic mom and pop bistro. I mean, the sort of classic trope of like, you know, this white guy chef, white guy sort of general manager or owner who sort of plays host. And then all of these women who need to look a certain way to make sure they get good tips and, and act a certain way. And then, you know, by and large, people of color in the kitchen who are actually cooking the food. Um, but Mm. being directed by the one like white guy. And so from a systematic place, I just think that the system itself and and a lot of that is changing. You know, I said that, um, I think, you know, publicly a few years ago, and Mm. and now you see some huge strides happening in the industry. You see more and more women and people of color being recognized by media and having the media not just focus on sort of the famous tall, straight white guys and fine dining, you see media paying more attention to different types of cuisine, um, aside from just, you know, sort of modern European. And you also see a lot of people in the back of the house and women, both in the front and back saying, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to, this is not fair. And recognizing and pointing out the discrepancies and the inequity and not wanting to put up with it anymore. And, And I think that, you know, you have a place like, especially here living in the Bay Area, that issue becomes so exasperated because we live in a city where it is like impossible to live without a really high living wage. You know, rent and the cost of living in the Bay Area is just astronomical, you know. And, and so so, so from a systematic place, it, it becomes incredibly challenging because, you know, you have parts of the country where maybe this fight for $15 is like enough, but I can't 
and in fact could be a great thing for people. I personally, and, and not that I have, you know, in the past I've paid people under $15 and it's hurt my heart. It's what, I mean, it's all my business could afford. And now I just know, like, if I ever open another restaurant, like I can't imagine, like, I, it feels unconscionable to pay somebody less than 15 or $18 an hour. And I'm talking about the lowest paid person, which, you know, when I say that to people in other parts of the country where the cost of living is a lot less, they're just like, whoa, that. <laughs> Crazy because it, we're also talking about just running a business, and, and so from a systematic place, I just think that that there's a lot that needs to be changed, and and I'm really happy to see that I'm not alone, and there's a lot of people out there trying to make those changes. Now, from a artistic point of view, to me, I just think that there's a significant amount of sameness and boringness in the fine dining industry, and and so much of it is smoke and mirrors and artifice. And so often, you know, I find myself, I'll go to these meals, you know, I used to go more often. Now it's probably like every six months to a year, I'm like, yeah, you know, we're in this place, let's go to this one place. And it seems interesting. And, you know, and by and large, I feel like I sit there for like, a, you know, whether it's seven or 12 courses. And the first three, I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. And by like five or six, I'm just like, oh, first of all, why do we do this to ourselves? Like, why do we like put on these fancy clothes that we feel uncomfortable in and sit in this place and like eat this stuff that like, you know, half of it looks more exciting than it actually tastes, <laughs> you know, because I would rather eat things that are flavorful and delicious. And, and then it also, it's like, who can afford this? Like, you know, a lot of the critique is that, you know, we're really just pandering to the 1%. And, mm-hmm. and, and to sort of have this indignation of like, oh, we are the industry. And it's like, how are you the industry? You feed 1% of people. Mm. Is that changing? Because I have not had many uh, fine din- dining experiences. I haven't been to many restaurants, but um, I've been to a few. And when I go, I see mm-hmm. people like customers um, from all different parts of the world basically and mm-hmm. i see and i see younger people and maybe that is also pushing um uh, customer preferences for diversity in cuisine do you think that is the case or still 1% very specific demographic that it is catering to well i mean i think that that's just it right there it's like the other sort of critique that i've had is that it's a, a lot of fine dining is i mean it's basically haute couture and just like Hokator, it mines from people of color and minority communities. And so what you have is a situation where, you know, yeah, everybody's sick of beef Wellington and lobster Thermidor, or actually it's making a comeback, but that's a different story. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, people want more interesting taste. So what you have is you still have the same system of people in power and establishment, but now they're going to go and, oh, we hear like, you know, the food from Southern India is really hot, or mm. we hear about, you know, and it's sort of mining you know, I mean, it's what you want to call it cultural appropriation or just sort of mining, just like, you know, high end fashion mines streetwear and then sells it, you know, a thousand times the price, uh, you know, as inspiration. I mean, you have the same sorts of things happening, right? You have like all of a sudden you go to some high end restaurant and, you know, course number three, it's like this quote unquote curry emulsion. Um, and it's like, oh, okay. What is curry, by the way? Because in Pakistani cuisine, there is no such thing as curry. I have... <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> no, because I. it's um, like when people say curry and I'm like, hmm, let me so, think about it. <laughs> no, I agree with you massively. I um, And I've had a lot of Indian people get very angry with me. Um, and I still... Okay. Um, I survived. 
you know, so I had this thread like a year or two ago on Twitter where I was talking mm. about how curry is a social construct. And I think anyone who disagrees with me probably just doesn't understand what a social construct is because, you know, it was like, <laughs> well, curry is a thing. It's a thing. And it's like, well, yes, yeah, so is gender, but it is still a social construct. Like, so is whiteness. It's still a social construct. Absolutely, yeah. And so maybe they just need a little more education on critical thinking. But, you know, putting that aside, uh, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that, you know, the curry was a word created by non-Asian people, um, whether they're, you know, whatever political borders of Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, but then you also have Absolutely, Thai, yeah. you know, Vietnamese, Malaysia, um, et cetera, where, you know, they basically saw this like massive amount of all of these different types of food and they're like, curry. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if we did that to European cuisine? I mean, it's just insane if you were yeah. just like, you know, this is all pudding. I mean, I guess the British actually do call everything pudding. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's just, a, you know, I mean, but it was, it's a way to just, you know, because basically like I didn't grow up eating anything at home that was called curry. Right. Absolutely. Uh, exactly. Never. You, you know, you, if you if you go to back before thi- and, and language is power. Right. Like we, mm-hmm. we talk about how things are named. The, the language is power. Being able to name something. I think about like my early feminism classes and when the terms that like sexual assault and rape and, you know, sexual harassment mm-hmm. came to be. It was like having power in naming a, a, a thing. Uh, and being able to say, this is what this is. I mean, I feel for myself, like as a little kid growing up, like I never even knew there was such a thing as gay. So mm-hmm. like, you know, until I discovered like, oh, this is a thing and this is why I feel different or like a word like cultural appropriation. I remember the first time seeing chai blow up in the, you know, in the US in the nineties and being like, what? And I didn't feel right to me, but I didn't have the words for it. And so mm-hmm. to me, you know, using a word like curry to basically encompass such, such a massive swath of dishes from various cultures, subcontinents, is is devaluing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, if you go back to, you know, even all of the things that would be considered, quote unquote, curry, they're called methi chicken. They're called roganjush. Right. They're called chicken curry. They have names. Lamb yes. curry. But fine. Yes. Do people use this word? Do I use this word sometimes? Sure. Because it is a word that people understand that puts things in categories. Humans really like categories. It helps people understand what it is they're getting and fine. But, but to me, I think that there's also a certain way in which you say it. So for example, like chicken curry is a thing, but you know, I had a restaurant where we made Indian pizza and once in a while, someone would call it curry pizza. And I'm like, what the, (laughs) like what curry? Like, Maybe they you know, thought the sauce on pizza was curry. Right, but it's like, but yeah. what? No, but here's the thing. It's There's like, a million different quote-unquote curries. People will say, uh, when I say, oh, I have an industry, oh, I don't like curry. Like, you yeah. just reduced every single thing I make to this word curry. And, and there are so many other words, Preeti. Like, and I am, I cook every, almost every other day. I am not a professional chef, but I cook salon and biryani and pulao and all of that stuff. And so I take offense if, if you know, any of those dishes or anything is named wrongly or inappropriately. So when I go out and when I see, for instance, chai tea, it bothers mm-hmm. me. And mm-hmm. I've said it so many times, chai is tea. So why would you say tea tea? Just say, either right. say chai or 
or say tea. And semantics matter because I think if we don't care for these things, then we are redefining what they really mean. So talking about food, Indian, Pakistani, mm-hmm. South Asian food, you mentioned somewhere that you're like a big advocate for, you know, um, grinding whole spices. And I get yep. it because I have in my family, I have my aunts and everybody, they'll always grind spices. And I've been told like my husband thinks I should be doing the same. But uh-huh. I am so lazy because if I have to, because first of all, because desi cooking requires like 10 spices. Like in everything right. you have to put like uh, coriander and turmeric and red pepper and chilies and salt and so many things. Is there an easy way to do it? Or is there a specific spice that you think should absolutely be um, used as like fresh and then grounded? Is there any specific spice that we just absolutely have to grind before we use it? So for me, it's different techniques. Hmm. Um, I mean, I also think like it's okay to like grind, make a garam masala and use it for like a couple of weeks. I just wouldn't use it beyond like two or three weeks. Yeah, I go and um, get these like masalas from Indian stores right, and yeah. use them for I years. I just don't buy those. So, yeah. so uh, you know, here's the deal. I mean, obviously, like it's it's up to you and your and the flavor that you want. Like, first of all, like I do add whole spices to some rice dishes and things like that. Like you were mentioning biryani and stuff like that. So like I'll throw like a whole cinnamon stick or a black cardamom pot or something like that in there or some cloves or something. I I think that for me, it's, you know, it's about freshness of flavor. Like I remember, you know, I, I, like I said, I didn't grow up cooking. Like I didn't learn to cook Indian food professionally. Hmm. Like I did European cuisine. And so you know, I used to use those boxes. I go to Vix and get, you know, a Palabaji masala box or whatever. And and I mean, this is a story I remember. It was very like the epiphany moment of just like, you know, making something from scratch because I didn't have the masala. Like I thought I had it. And it was just like night and day. And it was like yeah. also like, well, duh. Uh, because here I, here I am, I cook California cuisine. I'm all about like, you know, the freshest, this and that, like I don't use garlic powder or, you know, whatever, all of these convenience products. I do everything from scratch, like, you know, fresh herbs, everything. And then, yeah, just take this box that's been sitting in the store who knows how long, you know, I mean, it, it, it makes a difference, right? I mean, it makes a difference of like, I know that there's a lot of times I've made things and people will eat them and they're just like, what this just tastes so different than any Indian food I've ever had. And I'm not surprised. I've I've had food that's like, you know, that has fresh spices and it is so different. It is so different. Right. I mean, I think you make a good point in that when we make a lot of our masalas, they have sometimes upwards of 10 <laughs> spices in them. And so therefore, to me, that makes it more paramount that you grind it fresh. Because if you have 10 spices in there, you want to taste all of them. The longer it's ground and sits, it, yeah. it starts to become more homogenous. So like, yeah, let's say you're just adding like ground cumin. Maybe it's okay if it's like a little bit older because it's just that one flavor. But when you're putting a masala that has 10, 12, 15 different spices in it, you you want to do it as fresh as possible because you want to be able to taste the nuance. And why bother putting a masala that has 10 different spices if you can't actually taste all of them? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, because I, I, I don't taste any spices in my food anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it every, becomes homogenous. Yeah, yeah they, yeah. it actually is. You're right, um, Preeti. I want to pivot a little and talk about your restaurant, Juhu Beach. It closed in 2018, right? Yep. And and you said there is, you know, a 3.0 version coming. So what what are what are your plans beyond that? What are you thinking? 
You know, honestly, it's been an interesting journey in the last year and a half. When I first closed, I really was hell-bent on the fact that I wanted a bigger restaurant. I mean, that was one of the issues is that we were we were very busy all the time and very popular, but it was a 40-seat restaurant. So like at some point you just cap out on how much revenue you can make. So, you know, 120, 130 people on a Friday, Saturday night, you know, three turns. Um, you know, Oakland is not New York City. People don't eat after 1030. And so I was really focused on one, a larger space and two, the fact that, you know, I had opened it originally to be sort of very casual and over time it sort of evolved into something um, a little bit more complicated. And that was just sort of the evolution of my cooking. And so I also have been really focused on wanting to do something uh, more high end because I felt like who was kind of a identity crisis. Like there were pops and masala fries, but then there was also like asparagus with a soft cooked duck egg. And so I've spent a lot of time focusing on that. And in the last few months, I've really come around to the fact that I don't want to do that. You know, I actually feel like accessibility is more important to me. And also the things we were talking about in terms of the inequities in our industry Um, And so my goal has really been on finding, figuring out how I can actually make my food more accessible instead of less accessible. And also, how how do you plan to do that then? So I'm I'm working on a few concepts that are probably be in like food halls where what I love about that is like the original, it it actually gets closer to the original inspiration of Juhu Beach. And, And that is actually having like a street food stall And a lot of these places didn't exist, I guess, seven, eight years ago when I started Juhu, especially with more diverse cuisine. So I think that, you know, America has been on a food hall love affair, Mm. but it started in the European place, right? So it was all about the Italian and the French and the cheeses and the charcuterie and the baguettes and pizza and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I think that that's been very prevalent for the last 10 years. And, and I think that this, the, the shift we're starting to see is that, as you were mentioning with the younger generation and, you know, people like Anthony Bourdain who came to Juhu and, and Jonathan Gold, both, you know, very sad um, that they're no longer with us, mm-hmm. who really champion a, a larger diversity of cuisine beyond Europe and how that's affected, I think, the next generation in, in really craving and being interested and exciting, excited about different flavors from different parts of the world. And, and I see that that's something that now you see sort of the shift from, it's still a food hall, I think, but the newer ones, I think what you're seeing is less European and more sort of, you know, almost a Latin American or Asian night market. And, and I think that that's a wonderful thing because it's, you know, we're always going to have burgers and pizza, some of my favorite foods, you know, to, to, so to me, I feel like it's an opportunity to bring my food to a larger audience with a lower price of admission and, and also do it justice in a way. Like, for example, like I never did Panipuri at Juhu because to me, Panipuri is like, you, it's the experience. It's not just it is the, the experience. Yeah. And and so to me, like, you know, giving somebody a plate where they have to fill the puris themselves and pour the pani in themselves and make the little bite and eat it. I'm like, that's not what it is. It's like you pull up to the thing and they like the guy like dips it in there and hands it to you and you (laughs) pop it in your mouth. And and so, you know, I like the idea of having a place that really can can be and, and also the visual 
like as opposed to having that, you know, server bring you your menu and whatever, it's just you visually just like in the, you know, Juhu Beach, you like look and you're like point and you're like, I want that. And you see them making it and it's like exciting and and, and, and all of that sort of excitement that I, I sort of had as my original inspiration, I feel like is, is actually going to be more closer to this vision of focusing on creating these kinds of experiences within food halls that have and different environments that have food from a lot of different regions, as opposed to creating like a fancy high-end restaurant. And as you mentioned, it will, um, you know, attract diverse audience, diverse customer base, rather than, as you said, just catering to just 1% or, or, or fewer. So I think that exactly. that's a great idea. And I would love that because growing up in Pakistan, we ha- we still have like food street. And it's the whole experience, as you said. It's not just eating that food. It's the, the entire experience of it. Exactly. And it's it's interactive. It's fun. It it's, is I mean, interactive. It takes away and it's all fun. the artifice. Yeah. So uh, talking about Juhu Beach, you also co-authored a book called yes. Juhu Beach Club Cookbook. And you it's, it's part memoir, part your recipes. Why did you decide to distill everything in one book? And, and what do you want people to take away from it uh, when they read it? Wow, that's a, that's a hard question. You know, I mean, in terms of the wanting to share a lot about the history, to me, it's just like, I'm, I'm a complicated person. You know, as we were saying at the beginning of the conversation, mm. like I recognize that like my cuisine is informed by a lot of different experiences. And so to sort of just put out a book that was just like pretty pictures and recipes didn't really make sense to me because I didn't feel like it really spoke to the larger picture of, you know, how did this all come together and what is this all about? And then I think also that quite honestly, I don't know a lot of queer women, Indian women chefs with cookbooks. So, you know, just like every other opportunity I'm given, I think it's important to use my platform to get a certain story across. You know, I I joked around after the book came out, flipping through it because it didn't really occur. In the moment, you're just like so focused on what you're doing. And I was like, oh, wow, it's a cookbook with a secret lesbian love story. (laughs) Um, And I remember showing it to friends and they're like, oh, my God, there's like a photo from your wedding and like. You know, and and how I proposed to Anne and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, for me, I feel like that's just like super important because there's so few things like that. Like I remember like, you know, shortly after I got out of culinary school, I was gifted uh, Raji Cuisine, uh, Raji Jalapali, who was a chef who unfortunately passed away when she was 52, who, you know, had a Indian and French uh, restaurant in Memphis in the 90s. And, you know, I just remember getting that book and just being Mm. like, wow. Yeah. Because I never saw any Indian woman who was like a chef, you know, with a chef jacket and not, you know, like in, you know, just not in the sweet shop, but like in a fancy restaurant with wine and, you know, fancy dishes and all of the stuff. And, you know, I was very enamored with fine dining when I first, you know, when I was younger. And so for me, I just feel like it's a continuation of that. Like, I think it's important. Like, I know, like, I get messages from people often that, you know, talk about seeing me on Top Chef 10 years ago, or, you know, they read something about my book, or they have my book and what it means to them. And and I, I don't take that opportunity for the platform that I have lightly. I think it's really important. And I also think it's important to humanize people who are different. Absolutely. 
And I think that I, I really, I want people to like know and understand, you know, I kind of get this rep sometimes because of my Twitter persona that I'm like the angry brown lesbian. And, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of things to be angry about these days. And I'm always like, I'll meet somebody. I'll be like, so like, you know, like I'm actually like a really nice person. Uh, and they're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I mean, there is, as you said, there's so much going on right now and there is nothing wrong with being angry about it. Right, exactly, exactly. But for me, like, I want the book to really show, like, I'm a, I'm a, like, whole person. Hmm. And and this is, like, the whole story, you know, whether it's, like, you know, my upbringing and my, you know, my family, you know, there's a lot of, like, people that, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm Indian and my dad's a doctor. There's a lot of people, and, <laughs> and I've been successful in my life, so there's a lot of people out there that would love to just put me in that category of, like, oh, she's privileged, and, you know, kind of write me off to a certain things. And it's like, no, actually, like, you know, yeah. my family's been through a lot. And, you know, we, we are the American dream in a lot of ways, but it wasn't easy. And I, and I didn't grow up privileged by any means, mm -hmm. uh, but I am very aware of the privileges that I have had. And I have no problem, you know, being very clear about that and, and knowing that I have more than many others. And so, I mean, it's just uh, whether it's like the history of my family from, you know, being expelled from Uganda or, you know, different issues that sort of made my life more difficult, being queer, sort of being estranged mm -hmm. from my family, et cetera. It, it, it's part of the journey. And I think it's important for people to see that and understand it. It's not just like, you know, I think especially when you have people that are sort of other of yeah. the mainstream that break through then they become like that one, you know, it's like, you know, from like, you'd watch like what was uh, in do the right thing where Spike Lee's having that conversation with the, one of the brothers and he's like talking about Prince and he's like, yeah, but he's not just black. He's more than black. And it's yeah. like, no, he's black. And like, so people need to understand, like, it's like once you sort of break through somehow, you're not like all the other people from that group of people. And it's like, no, I am. You are exactly, exactly. Before I wrap up, if you were to describe America right now in a word or a sentence how would you describe it idealistic turmoil <laughs> mm, that's a good one actually I like it yeah. um, you know I mean I, I think our you know it's very easy for us to say that our country is in turmoil but but I do think that there's uh, a, a lot of people that believe you know I personally drank the Kool-Aid and, and believe that you know this can be the land of the free and, and that we have a lot of privileges here and and, and that we have the right to be engaged in our democracy that hopefully continues. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> and, and also that it's imperfect and, and it's never been perfect. It's our job to continue to perfect it. And so I don't want to forget that. So I, I don't want to ever forget their idealism. But I, I yeah, I mean, I, I can't think that anyone could look at the state of our country right now and think that it, it isn't in some state of turmoil. Yeah. Thank you so much, Preeti. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for listening. We have a website, www.immigrantlypod.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at immigrantly underscore pod. And our Instagram is at immigrantlypod. Um, come back next week when we have another amazing story. And in the meantime, stay connected. 